I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 59 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes, live from the Merton Shandon Summer House. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is no longer live, just in case you weren't sure about the machinations of a podcast. We are so happy to be here at the Moet Summer House. Moet is something that we feel very passionately about. Um, we're well aware that there is a 5.43 tradition of a glass of champagne being raised, which we know will happen. It's in, almost 5.43 and you all have record. champagne. So we may have to take a quick break to do that, which we're fine with. In the words of Freddie Mercury, she keeps Moet and Shandon in a pretty cabinet. Let them eat cake, she said, just like Marie Antoinette. You don't know what song I'm talking about, do you? Absolutely no idea. So those are the words in Killer Queen, and we think it might have been written about us, even though it was written 15 years before we were born. But anyway, it's still an attitude we hope to channel while pairing with our wonderful partner and host for this evening, Merton Shandon. Diving into the mailbag this week, we got an email from Rose, who is a volunteer on a joint project with Jurex and a charity called The Unmentionables, whose aim is to empower refugees and other displaced people through dignity through hygiene. They do this by providing reproductive education and distributing undergarments, feminine hygiene products and contraceptives in refugee camps and programmes. Their aim is to build the world's first ever sexual reproductive health web and app platform. Whilst 89% of refugees surveyed have said they would like reproductive health education, only 8% would attend in-person classes due to the stigma surrounding this topic. But 80% of refugees have smartphones, so technology is key to reaching this population. In two weeks, seven volunteers are going out to the Elonis refugee camp in Athens to volunteer alongside the unmentionables for three days over World Refugee Day on Wednesday, the 20th of June. To find out more about this, you can visit theunmentionablesglobal.org. We also received an email from Catherine, who is volunteering with an organisation called People's Vote Campaign, which is working to secure a vote on the final Brexit deal. Their goal is to ensure that the government's Brexit deal is put before the country in a public vote. The People's Vote Campaign is holding a march in London on June the 23rd to demand that we, all the people who are going to be profoundly affected by Brexit, get a final vote. So if you are pro-EU, go on down to the march. The aim is to get 150,000 people to Westminster on the 23rd find out more about the march you can go to www.peoples-vote.uk forward slash march slightly more trivial i am the one who manages the hilo's inbox and for some reason the hilo gets an extraordinary amount of spam um which always amuses what, me like make my dick bigger it's actually, it's not as amusing as Make My Dick, but dick bit Better. It's like... But it's better. <laughs> Just a bit better. That's a bit of a Freudian slip. Um, it's more, it's more, it still lures me in. It's like, we can, there's money waiting for you. 
you have 10 million pounds you're about to inherit, make your life easier. Anyway, I found one today, uh, and the subject was, I haven't a destiny with you. I haven't a destiny. I haven't a destiny with you. So I opened it up, and it took me a while to realise this was spam, because it read, you are not an hypocrite. You are so good with your desire. But me, I am not a prince. Either of your feeling is a good part of enjoy, and I haven't a destiny with you. And I realised that's either the world's best breakup email or some Eurovision lyrics. You can tell which one of us is single because Dolly has to really think about for a while whether or not this is I was someone like, who, who no longer desires her. Yeah, I was like, who, who is that guy? Do you want to go on a date with him? You don't have any destiny. Speaking of um, extraordinary, has anyone else thrown by the Solange collaboration with IKEA? Did anyone else see this today? I don't want to draw dollar signs in the air, but I don't want to not draw dollar signs in the air either. Apparently, the multidisciplinary hub that she founded, St. Heron, will be working on architectural and design objects with functional use, which sounds like furniture, no? <laughs> well, for sure. They'll be making a, a Malm set of drawers with a Solange twist. <laughs> <laughs> I love those names so much. Um, the world has also melted, because I'm sure everyone's seen, that Paddy Power and various other bookies have suspended bets on the Beckham's marriage. So I think tabloids are blowing up over, over that news. And weirdly, so is my WhatsApp. <laughs> also, so, yeah, so is Twitter. But sadly, for defamation reasons, we can't say any more about that. I've got a nice bit of joyful news to hit you with. There is a rumour that Donald Glover is going to be cast as the first ever black Willy Wonka in a spin-off about Charlie. He is having a moment. I think that next big thing, for or already thought, big thing. For a moment I thought you meant Willy Wonka. But the story will apparently tell Willy Wonka's origin story. And Brian Gosling is also rumoured to be up for it. Uh, I think this is really exciting. I love when we not only tell new stories with kind of new diverse voices and experiences and stuff we've never seen before. I think it's great when we diversify old and much loved and original stories. I think that's really powerful. I know you and I had slightly differing opinions on this, but I rejoiced when An Italian Opera House changed the ending of Carmen as a sort of feminist ending. I think it was like a bad idea per se. I just thought that that was quite an exhausting road to go down because literally like every single opera is the opposite of feminist. I just thought it might be quite a long journey. I think it was was just for this one production and they changed the ending to highlight. No, I think we talked about that on the highlights. It's a nice idea. So yeah, I think it's brilliant that they're doing that with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Willy Wonka. I think with all this stuff, it's really important that we're not too precious about the original and writing it off and saying, well, it was what it was and therefore it's no longer relevant. I really love the idea of these old treasured stories kind of growing and moving like an organism as time moves on to kind of reflect how their audiences are feeling and what the world is like. So I think that's a great piece of news. This week, I say this week, but in the interest of transparency, this is recorded a mere one day after our last podcast. So to say we have been imbibing content (laughs) would would be underestimating. I have just read a fascinating piece in GQ about citizenship. Now, I know that you wouldn't put those two words together, fascinating and citizenship, 
But it focuses on the fact that no matter how rich you are, you cannot buy a passport. Well, that's apparently not true. Turns out you can. Countries like St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean and Malta, who have high-grade citizenship, which basically means they have visa-free access to, I mean, in the case of St. Kitts, 128 countries in the world, are offering citizenship and passports in return for investment to prop up their ailing economy. I know it's a real moral conundrum. That's so problematic, I think. So, for example, it tells the story of a very rich Libyan man who now lives in Dubai and has a very successful business, but his Libyan passport only allows him visa-free access to 41 countries. So every time he travels for work, which is all the time, it's incredibly stressful. So he went to St. Kitts and he spent $400,000 on a piece of property. So he became a sort of citizen of St. Kitts and in return he got a passport. It's a very interesting ethical decision. The EU Parliament actually voted against Malta being allowed to adopt this scheme because obviously if you give someone a Maltese passport they have automatic access to the EU, the citizenship in the EU. But Malta found a loophole, still managed to force it through. So they now, run the, they now run the same scheme as well, and various other countries as well. Malta has made over 500 million euros from selling passports in the last five years. And St Kitts and Nevis, through the scheme, have halved their national debt in five years. I think that's so fucked up. It's I like, told you it was interesting about citizenship. You know, in when... Um, well, you won't know, but on, at my fitness first in Camden... <laughs> There's, you can join like different bands. I like to spend time with you, but not so much that I will watch you working out. Although that could be quite fun. When you're a member of Fitness First, you have like different bands and you pay a certain amount. And when you've got like the platinum band, it means you basically can go to any Fitness First in the world. It's like Soho House. Well, yeah, kind of. All right, Pandora. Someone's doing well. Um, but it feels a bit like that. Like, that's just such a bizarre system. Well, I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, they say in the piece that there's obviously an ethical issue. So there was an example of a Sudanese man and it said, you know, someone rich in the Sudan can afford to buy a whole new nationality, but what about someone poor? But I don't know if that argument really washes for me because you could apply that by extension to anything. Yes, the rich Sudanese man is going to have much more access to the freedoms of life than the, than the poor Sudanese man. But, it, but with St Kitts and Nevis, I, there's on the flip side, kind of in defence of them, this was a country whose entire economy was hinged on the selling of sugar and they were undercut for some reason or another. I can't remember the entire article off by heart. And so they needed a new, they needed a new kind of national economic system. Yeah. And so they were like, well, let's go for tourism. But they couldn't build any hotels because there weren't any flights. No one would put on any flights until they built the hotels, but they couldn't build the hotels until there were flights. So they were stuck in this situation. So now they are, hilariously, through these very rich people buying property there and investing in the economy, it's now turning into a luxury destination. And people are building the hotels. And over 10,000 people have got passports from St Kitts and Nevis. I don't know, skeeves me out a bit. The idea that money can kind of buy you... City. I like the idea that this is the one thing that money cannot buy you. Well, it can now. Well, it can. <laughs> <laughs> I've also been reading this week, rereading actually, Bonjour Tristesse, which is. Have you read that? No, I have a jumper with that slogan on, but I. But haven't. you've never read it. Oh my god, you're like one of those people that wears like a Rolling Stones T-shirt, but yeah. has never. Or all those basic men who wear Ramones T-shirts, and I'm like, name one of the Ramones, and they can't. So glad I don't have a Ramones T-shirt because I definitely can't name a song. Um, so Bonjour Tristesse was written by the 18-year-old French ingenue Francois Sagan. God, I hate trying to do another accent, but I just thought I couldn't say Francois Sagan in 1953, and it's. Um, it's the most brilliantly sharp 
sharp and funny read. You cannot believe she wrote it when she was 18. So she's basically trying to break up her father's relationship with this sexy young woman named Elsa. And Elsa's crying and saying, I'm going to miss you so much. And she says, all we'd ever really talked about was fashion, but I decided I was going to miss her terribly as well. It's just written so... It's been compared to Lolita, which is just so wrong, because Lolita was obviously written by a man. And yeah. this is written yeah. completely through the lens of this, of this 18-year-old girl. It's absolutely brilliant, and it sort of still hasn't aged at all. It's every 18-year-old girl and her slightly lofty interior monologue. That sounds brilliant. Why did you decide to pick it up again? I was rereading it for a Radio 4 show I went on this week called A Good Read. Right, yeah. It's out in a month. You didn't even set that up for me. <laughs> I wasn't even actually. like so that I could do some PR. <laughs> and lastly, I have just started Diet Land on Amazon Prime. Has anyone read about this? I feel like there's been a bit of press on it recently. It's so good. It's a black comedy starring Juliana Maguales from The Good Wife. You know, the, she plays the main, main role on The Good Wife. It's centred basically on... So she plays this kind of Devil Wears Prada-esque editor of a teen magazine called Daisy Chain. And there is a woman named Kitty who ghostwrites her kind of editor's letters. But everyone calls her Plum because she is round and succulent. And it's this whole... It kind of really skewers the... You'd love it because it's that whole thing on how kind of the whole beauty industry and the kind of interior monologue of this outwardly seeming quite kind of nervous woman who's just made to do the, you know, the editor's dirty business. And she basically gets taken in by a feminist organisation who want to topple over Daisy Chain. But it's really, it's really good and very clever and sharp. You would, you would really, really like it. Where can I watch that? Amazon Prime. What have you been enjoying in the day since I asked you what you've been enjoying? I have been listening to you. Thank you very much to the listener who recommended Moi Non Plus, which is an episode of the BBC Radio 4 show Analysis, which are really great little episodes that kind of go behind the big news stories and analyse. Um, so this is a 20 half an hour episode about how the Me Too movement is affecting France. Famously, we talked about it on the high-low, there was an open letter signed by Catherine Deneuve and other French public figures who talked about the dangers that they foresaw from the Me Too movement. And they talked about what they call the freedom to pester, (laughs) which is, it's, it's, they believe that seduction is such a treasured art of French Mm -hmm. culture that the byproduct of it may mean that you are touched up without your desire on the tube or someone catcalls you on the street or you're harassed by a French builder. Last time we talked about this, we got a few letters from younger, woke French women who were like, that's quite unfair. But obviously this is not all French women, but there is definitely a trope among the older French actors, which is stop being boring, it's all quite sexy. Well, I I think what they feel is that's a very small price to pay in the art and language of sexuality and love. Like, that's kind of the offcuts of it. So, you know, if we get rid of all of that, then we get rid of a lot of kind of sensual connection between men and women. And I'm not saying that this is all French women. And actually, this is what the programme goes into really, really well. The fact is, there is a sensibility in France historically where the art of seduction and the culture of seduction is something that's really treasured and something they pride themselves on. And they go into the history of that. It dates back to Versailles when it was about kind of gallantry. And um, I I really think we're too quick sometimes, myself included, to kind of 
be reductive and write off the culture of men and women in sexual politics in France. And the reason this programme is so good is, I think, to understand this kind of deeply entrenched culture of sex and romance and men and women. And the history of it is to understand that disparity now. And there is a disparity because they, they speak to and they interview a lot of young French feminists who say that they don't see themselves reflected in that kind of more traditional French sensibility. So I'm very aware that there is that kind of chasm between the generations. But yeah, it's really, really interesting. So I would mm -hmm. recommend that you listen to that. I also, I promise you, this is the last time I mention Sex in the Fucking City. I really will not talk about it in the next episode, I promise. I actually thought when I told you I was going to talk about Sex in the City again this week, you may, today you may have vetoed it, but she didn't. Um, so as we know, because we've banged on about it so much, this week was the 20-year birthday of Sex and the City. 20-year birthday, not anniversary. Anniversary <laughs> and birthday. And I thought that I'd read all the takes that I could read on Sex and the City. The hot, the warm, the cold, the completely irrelevant. But Caroline O'Donoghue, who's a very brilliant journalist, whose novel, actually, Promising Young Women, is out this week. That I and who talked to us when we did an episode on the repeal in yes. Ireland and he was wonderful and eloquent and lovely. Yes, we're big fans of Caroline and I'm a huge fan of her books. If you need a really juicy, compulsive novel to take on holiday, take Promising Young Women. She's written a piece that's about the unsung icons of Sex in the City. So this is only really a piece for someone who's like tits deep into the archive. <laughs> did Magda make it? Marked it. Marked is too obvious. It's like really specific people. <laughs> so the people that she mentions are the lesbian art collectors that Charlotte befriends in series one. It's really this is so niche. I don't know if my baby brain's going to get there. She talks about them. She talks about my favourite cameo of all time, which is weirdly I can't believe I have this level of trivia. Justin Theroux had two parts in Sex and the City. He had a very small part in series one where he played a love interest of Carrie's that was only on for two Just scenes. Just And then he had a second cameo where he played her love interest for a whole episode, but completely different characters. So they must have just loved Justin Theroux so much. <laughs> Although, for God, there's so many men on Well, it. do you know what? He had a quite I'm not calling them sluts. <laughs> he had quite a significant monobrow in the first one that had gone by the second one, so perhaps they didn't recognise <laughs> New him. decade. Yeah. New look. Uh, but in that, in that episode, it's one of my favourite episodes called Shortcomings. It's about a man who ha has premature ejaculation problems. I'm very sad for everyone at home that missed my hand gesture when I Which said that. <laughs> Um, Which one is he sleeping with? With Carrie. And okay. she stays with him because she falls in love with his family. They're like this really charming family. And such a poignant episode for me as I got older because that has happened to me where I've yeah. been with someone and I've stayed with them because I just... I'm so, I, I'm in love with the mum and dad and the siblings, but just not the guy. Yeah, I, a, a friend of mine, when she broke up with her boyfriend, she also had to break up with one of her best friends, which was his sister. Yeah. You know, tough. you have to do the clean, yeah. the clean break. Yeah. So they, she talks about the mum in that. And she also talks about Lexi Featherston, who is the socialite. That throws herself out the window. Who says, no, she doesn't throw herself out, out the window. She says, I'm so fucking bored I could die. And then she... Oh. <laughs> falls out the window and the episode is called Splat and again this shows like academic no uh, knowledge of Sex and the City that I have I actually five years ago already read a piece that's in New York magazine that I'll link to in the show notes 
which is the executive producer and the writer doing a kind of oral history talking about the meaning and the significance and the making of that episode and why it was such an important episode in Sex and the City. Why was it such an important episode in Sex and the City? Because I think it was about the end of an era in New York, about things changing in New York. About people not being so drunk they fell out of... Yeah, and about the, about the end of the 90s and the end of kind of you know, hugely irresponsible decadence. Yeah, not the hugely irresponsible, but this is quite 90s. <laughs> Ch- champagne at six on a Friday. Everyone God, else I still wish at work. You and I would have thrived had we done the high-low in the 90s, seriously. <laughs> um, so that's a great take on Sex in the City from Caroline O'Donnell. It's really, ma- it's really filled me with the Sex in the City love. I want to go back and watch it, actually. It's probably on. Is it on Netflix, do you reckon? Or Amazon Prime? It's on Now TV. So on Now TV, God, so many streaming platforms that I have to check it out. Support for the Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to emails to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Each week, Dolly and I cast our eye over the news and look for someone or something who has challenged the status quo. And this week's winner is stationery and card shop Paper Chase, who have created a line of Father's Day cards for single mothers. One reads Swiss Army Knife Parenting, and the other reads If You Do Both Jobs. The aim is to celebrate single mothers who do twice the work to raise a child. Thank you to Paper Chase for pairing creativity with inclusivity. And thank you to our sponsor Google and the Google Pixel 2 for allowing us to indulge our curiosity always. From Sex and the City to the extraordinary tale of Anna Delvey, a completely mad story that has been doing the rounds this week. Lots of people emailed us actually. Has to say, anyone know about this story? So odd. So it's a really long, it's a long essay, isn't it? Yeah. On... <laughs> Yeah, says Dolly. It's a long essay on... It took 40 minutes to read that. Yeah, in... um, Took me 20. In New York magazine. And it basically proves if you flash enough cash, you can convince people that you are anyone. So in short, the praise of this piece is... The now 27-year-old Russian-born Anna Delvey pretended to be a trust fund baby setting up an arty type of Soho house in 2016. And she stayed at the trendiest hotels in New York. She knew Macaulay Culkin. She had a celebrity trainer who had sculpted Dakota Johnson's own buttocks for Fifty Shades. She paid for everything with $100 bills, anything, even a coffee. Except it turned out that Anna Selvey's real name was Anna Sorokin and she didn't have any money at all. The daughter of a former truck driver, she was from a humble family in Germany who had no idea what she was doing and she'd be paying for vast bills with bounced checks and at the time of the recording she's on trial in Manhattan having been charged with six counts of grand larceny aka theft to the tune of $275,000. I'm totally fascinated and obsessed with these kind of stories. First of all I think because you and I are such anxious people the thought of like creating an entire like sort of second hologram of yourself and keeping up with the stories. It's like people who have another family. I just don't know how they do it. Like it's when I time. go, you know when you go to the dentist and they're like, when was your last checkup? And you lie. Yeah. I will leave and I'll be like, this is all going to come out in the wash and I'm going to be hung to dry yeah, and I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to survive this public scandal. So I'm, I'm amazed by these people that manage to have these like entire personas that are completely constructed and she must have lay awake 
at night in bed and thought about how this money, you know, she was living in a hotel that was a £30,000 bill by the time they realised that she was a fraud. The story is, as they said in the piece, other people around her said in the piece when they found out she was a fraud, is that when someone is really rich, people don't ask questions. Yes. Every hotel she went to, they were like, oh, we don't have a credit card on file. And she'd have like 30 grand debts, but she'd be like, oh, it's coming, it's being wired. Yeah. It's like being wired through Citibank. And she managed to get through all these different hotels with that. Yeah, it's bizarre. And I think there's also something really interesting to me about it's like a classic Holly Golightly tale when you go back and read about her family like in the piece which we'll link to in the show notes they they interview her family and they seem like a very humble normal they come you know they come from a small town working class town and she had a kind of very small fairly insignificant upbringing I think so you wonder where this grew like totally but that's what you know the criminality and fraud and theft aside it's sort of quite a romantic tale when you think well when you think about how this girl must have dreamt up who she wanted to be and how she would get it she must have just been pinching herself when she got there I'm just fascinated by that kind of lofty obsession of reaching the stars and what specifically it was about that New York socialite scene that she was so drawn to and one of the most interesting and really sad lines in the piece is where someone is quoted as saying she wasn't super hot she wasn't really friendly she wasn't even particularly nice yeah it's a fairly rote kind of capitalist rags to riches trajectory like many a russian oligarch until you realize how many checks she managed to bounce because i didn't even realize people use checks anymore let alone bounce them I think the tale of Anna Delvey has gripped people for four reasons. Firstly, people love a high tale, something completely improbable yes. and scandalous and gossipy. Secondly, we love a fall from grace. I, you know, I know that's sad, but it's completely true. There's a certain amount of schadenfreude when someone privileged loses everything. Thirdly, I think it reminds us how you never really know someone. And fourthly, it reminds us how obsessed humans are with material objects to the detriment of rational thought. I mean, she managed to kind of bring so many people into her web just with those $100 bills. They were like catnip. And money can really distract people entirely from who you are and who you aren't. The other main character in the story, who was almost as interesting for entirely different reasons, as essayed meticulously and sensationally by New York Magazine, is a young woman named Neff who works on the concierge at the first boutique hotel that Anna stays at. She's a completely mercenary and ruthlessly honest young woman who doubts from the start that Anna is who she says she is. But those crisp $100 bills are just a little too much had to do anything about it. I think the story of Anna's only half of it. Mm. I think the other half of the people that enabled her and sponged off her and believed her or semi-believed her or hung out with her when they really knew nothing about her, I think they're just as much a piece of shit as her. I have to say, I think, they're, I think that's just as interesting as an examination of how shitty humans can be. As I was reading the very, very long story, I kept sending uh, very squawky voice notes to Pandora because... It is something that I'm fascinated by, these kind of these certain circles of people for whom these kind of fun vehicles, I'm going to call them, whether they're fake or not, hold this, this massive currency for them. And I think you see these figures all the time. I've especially seen them in my 20s. Where- you kept remembering a new one being like, God, and I didn't tell you about Becky. Now, <laughs> Becky, and this would be like another fight. That's what took you 40 minutes to read because you kept breaking off to be like, God, and then there was this one. <laughs> but I just, there, I've encountered this 
type of group of people who love going out and they love fun. Normally they like drinking, often they like drugs, they often like fame. And there's always someone who is their enabler and often they'll work somewhere high up or they just have lots of money or they have lots of access to drugs and celebrities and alcohol. And what's so funny is when you see that from the outside, the circle of people that swarm that fun vehicle, they pivot. They're obsessed with them and they're like, oh, he's a legend, we love him, it's not a night out without him, or like, she's incredible, everyone loves her, everyone knows her. And when you actually pause for a minute to be like, but like, do you know anything about them? It's interesting that those people hold such a currency, but what you read over and over again in the story about... So they never uh, really knew them? Is that they don't know anything about their personality. They don't know anything about who they are or what they like about them or indeed what they don't like about them. All they know is that they're the person that gives them a free ticket to a good time. And it's amazing to me how long those sort of, those flimsy relationships can last and how detrimental and sad that must be for the person who's this fun vehicle. Are you a fun vehicle ever? I think you're a bit of a party bus. I don't have access to anything, though. That's the only problem. Minus the wads of dosh. I'd hire you on a Friday night in a non-sexual sense. Thank you very much. That's right. <laughs> Refinery29 reported from her trial this week, and this is just so camp. The whole thing is actually so camp. Yeah, that Hollywood is. are interested in her story, and Anna would like Jennifer Lawrence or Margot Robbie to play her. So her giant ego is still in residence. <laughs> yeah, I, I quite love that about her, though. I think that adds, it really gilds the story, how sort of... <laughs> how enormous her ego is. Oh, she's absolutely not like she's shameless. Yeah, she's yeah, shameless. she's like, look, I've still got a legit business. I'm just having cash flow issues. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit upset when I read that because as I was reading the story, I was like, God, this would make a great novel. Maybe this will be my novel, finally, an idea for a novel. But of course, Margot fucking Robbie got there first. Who we love dearly. Anna Delvey isn't actually the first person to do this. There was Belle Gibson, the Australian wellness blogger, who wrote an entire book published by Penguin called The Whole Pantry, I think, about how a diet saved her brain cancer. And it turned out to be complete bullshit. She'd never even had cancer. And she was fined 410,000 Australian dollars, which was like a landmark ruling in Australia. And then there was another Australian, what's going on down there? Esna O'Neill, an Instagram influencer who started rewriting all her captions on Instagram and deleting posts as if she was having a mental breakdown. And lots of people thought it was a piece of performance art. The jury's still kind of out on what she was necessarily trying to achieve with that. And of course, Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of medical startup Theranos, who I remember reading a Vanity Fair profile on a few years ago. She raised over $700 million fraudulently for a blood testing device that didn't actually work. And in March of this year, she was forced to leave Theranos and had to pay a half million fee. The balls in entering yeah. the medical yeah. arena and raising 700 million. But these background checks just don't happen because when someone fronts that hard, well, people totally. are just like, sure, sounds great. I have to say, this performance art thing seems to be like a bit of a one-size-fits-all excuse at the moment for being a bit of a shit. Does it, everyone, has anyone heard the conspiracy theory about Kanye West? Apparently this is all performance art, all the mad stuff that he's saying. Maybe I'll start using it. Maybe next time I'm late with a deadline, I can be like, it's performance art. <laughs> um, I actually knew Anna Delvey, and it obviously didn't get as out of hand as this, but she was a girl that I was at uni with who was rumoured to have this sort of Euro-aristocratic background, and she had this like, sort of unidentifiable accent, 
which I think is their, the key to their powers, actually, because it means you can't really do any Yeah, it's checks. an unidentifiable European yeah. accent. Um, and she managed to get into kind of different social circles by meeting certain people at certain clubs, and she went out with the right people. And um, the, the whole thing was a construction. Like, she... There were rumours, apparently, that when, when it all came tumbling down after a few years of people knowing her, that there was this enormous house in a, in a really affluent part of London where she would say, which she said was her address, and people would like meet her outside it, but they could like never come in for a cup of tea. Was she house-sitting like Vince Vaughan? When you no, I don't think it was even that authentic. I think it was literally just a front, and she lived in an entirely different borough. <laughs> but I, do, I, get how, I get how that kind of hologram how that works because the point is coolness and money and like social currency and being well connected like it, it so actually it's so meaningless as as a kind of quantifiable thing you can't really unpick it because it means nothing it's it's all sort of it's all an illusion anyway like you can't fake being clever you can't fake being kind you can't fake being charming you can't fake being creative and actually what this story is is it's the legend of the emperor's new clothes it shows how easy it is to construct an illusion out of stuff that really doesn't say anything about who you are the one that really freaks me out at the moment does anyone follow her on instagram is the ai influencer lil michaela so she has over one million followers on instagram and she does like brand partnerships and stuff and she started to talk back to her creators in a recent post, she wrote, I'm not sure I can comfortably identify as a woman of colour. Brown was a choice made by a corporation. Woman was an option made by a computer screen. My identity was a choice, brood, who I'm guessing are her creators, made in order to sell me to brands to appear woke. I will never forgive them. I am not sure I will ever forgive myself. So I'm so confused by this because she is not real. So did brood write this? Is it a comment on themselves? Is it a larger comment on AI? Am I meant to believe that she is now a real robot? Is she like post AI? Do we no longer care if people are human? Do we like fetishize mere constructions of women? Because she has over one million people who follow her and are like, oh, I love this outfit, babe. And I'm like, she's not fucking real. Very confusing. I don't like it. I did send her a message asking if I could interview her and she didn't reply. <laughs> I don't like her at all. I don't like it. It's very Black Mirror. I don't it's like so it. so Black Mirror, you're right. But no one else seems to be freaked out by it. Anyway, I read a very funny piece on The Outline by Amanda Mull that says that really Anna Delvey should have been exposed a lot sooner because she had frizzy hair. And no one... Oh and so no nice. one really... Re- Bear with me. No one really rich has frizzy hair because they go and get expensive keratin treatments. Posh people have frizzy They go and get expensive keratin treatments. That is true. And Amanda says, you know, someone pretending to have $800 haircuts would not have frizzy hair. This is what she writes. Delvey's problem was that she didn't actually have the money to be bored all the time. Scams take constant maintenance and she spent her energy currying favour with those who could lift velvet ropes for her when the wire transfer was taking longer than expected. I have to say, the number of times in the piece when you read her saying this excuse about like the wire transfer, the wire. It's really nineties. But it's like it, it made me so anxious. It's like you know when you're really late for a friend and they're like, "Where are you? Where are you?" And you're like, "I'm I'm in standstill traffic," or like, "I'm at Euston Station." Like that's the one that I always say, and the train's not going anywhere. It just made me feel so sick. I'm just not cut out. I'm not cut out to ever be. I really think that these ballsy young fraudsters say as much about us as it does about them. Sure, they're deluded, morally bankrupt individuals, but societally, we're just blindsided by cold, hard 
cash dollar bills that we fail to see through these facades. But that said, can you blame a lot of people? Can you blame a lot of people in these stories? Neff reports that Anna would give $100 bills to anyone that would carry up bags when she'd been shopping, or anyone that bought her, you know, something from room service or made a dinner reservation. So all the, the wait staff would fight with each other, like physically fight, because it's not like they were earning very much money. Well, you know, the service industry, hospitality is not hugely well paid. You can't blame them for slightly putting any doubts they had about her to the side and benefiting from it. No, I don't. I have to say I don't blame the people that were working for her or that were working in the hotel. And actually, I wouldn't even blame some like stupid 18 year old who was looking for a glass of champagne or like a VIP club. The person I feel really sorry for is the Vanity Fair staff writer, Rachel Williams, who became her friend and is now in $62,000 worth of credit card debt. And she's written about it for Vanity Fair. So, you know, all the stories copy. But the all I would say is like, the, the, as you said, the resounding quote from it that really haunts me is everyone saying that no one really liked her. So I'm sorry, I think if you're hanging out with her and spending all her money and going on holiday with her and you don't know anything about her and everything you do know you don't like, I think that makes you like a bad person. <laughs> I don't think that's a good person. There's a great piece on BuzzFeed by Tom Garrow, which basically says that we are living in the golden age of scamming. For an ambitious scammer in 2018, this is like being a sculptor in the 1500s Florence. Every major force at play in our world is like a wind at your back. In politics, a team of all-star grifters now run the United States and their fake-it-till-you-make-it ethos bleeds into everything it touches and elevates aspirational young con artists into national figures. Technology allows you to create and maintain an entirely constructed identity, giving you not just the tools to manipulate your image and massage the truth of your everyday life, but also an audience hungry to consume that image and believe in it. Our culture doesn't discourage any of this. It celebrates it. It rains wealth and prestige, at least briefly, upon those whose game is strong enough. And it's true, in Trump's America, this is the ideal playground for fronting. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. And I think if you want to be sort of really bleak and nihilistic about it, because why not? It's a Friday night. I think we could go as far as to say that everyone, well, most people who have a social media presence or live half of their life online are hiding some of the truth or sometimes the whole truth from themselves or from their followers. So maybe she's just a sort of extreme version of that. Maybe, maybe this is a world that we're in now. That there's a sliding scale of the kind of collage of truth and reality of who we are. Support for the highlight comes from our partner, Moet and Shandon. To celebrate the summer, Moet will be launching a series of summer celebrations in bars and hotels across London and the UK in June and July. In the spirit of generosity, Moet will be revealing their Champagne Tower at 5.43pm and offering all partygoers a glass to toast the 275 years of the brand. For anyone who's into the 80s culinary scene, Moet will also be bringing back the amuse-bouche. I absolutely love the phrase amuse-bouche. So keep your eyes peeled for dates of these events or listen to the humble high-low for updates and check out the websites of cocktail bars, Jimbo Law Coupette or Calou Calais to join in the fun. A spot of champagne trivia before we go. Why not? The illustrious Marquise de Pompadour was one of the house's enthusiasts. Legend has it she would have declared after drinking Moet, champagne is the only wine that makes a woman more beautiful. Thank you very much to Moet and Shandon and the Marquise de Pompadour.
Moving on to Pandora's favourite topic, not Taylor Swift, not the produce of Greg's the Baker, but of course Love Island, which I'm both relieved and regretful to say I still haven't watched one minute of. But today we aren't talking about the goings-on of the hopeful contestants, but instead the conversation that's happening around the show, and that is the question of body diversity. I am completely and utterly obsessed with Love Island, like everyone in the UK who is not Dolly. So it is with much regret that I must confront the inevitable truth this week about the lack of body diversity on Love Island, which has been criticised quite a lot this week. Our screens are filled with a very homogenised body type that is slim, toned, tanned and hairless. They have been all described as having the figures of models. Obviously, given that the average size for a woman in the UK is a size 16, this is unrepresentative. And it's not the first time the show has come under fire for this. The past two seasons, body positive activists and spokespeople have voiced concerns on the subject of body diversity. Pandora, as an avid Love Island watcher and defender, what do you make of this? Well, I am an avid defender of Love Island for lots of reasons, but I wouldn't defend it against this because they are all spectacularly slim and golden, except for one, na- one man named Alex who doesn't have a tan, and it's actually become a real boon for him. He's been very stressed by it, and you can see how puzzled he is. He hasn't realised that everyone else on Love Island has been building on a sunbed. And su- yeah, and suntan. What I think is that this is a show where you are filmed in your swimwear 12 hours a day. It takes a huge amount of body confidence to audition for a show like this. I think the stats were probably vastly skewed in the first place in that the people who applied to be contestants are people who love swanning around in a bikini and yes. happen to think they have quite good bodies. Now, you don't have to be slim to have body confidence, but I don't think you would argue that the two are often intrinsically linked. Uh, no, agreed. And I think it does take a particular type of narcissistic personality to want to be on that kind of show, which is no judgment at all. She's never watched it. But I also think it's a vicious cycle because how can people over a size eight ever have that body confidence if they never see themselves on screens or on pages? Because what will happen is it just makes their body feel like their body's sort of wrong. And therefore... How do, you get, how do you gain confidence when you think that your body is wrong? I mean, my thoughts first and foremost, before we get onto the moral maze of it, is I, I think it just looks very old-fashioned. When I look at the lineup of Love Island, it doesn't look very cool to me. It doesn't look very progressive. It doesn't look very creative. It doesn't look very chic. I think it all looks like... All of them that look like a Hollyoaks calendar from 2002. It, like, it is a walking, talking Hollyoaks calendar. I was reading a piece in Cosmopolitan recently about the third... 30 top performers on Bumble, and they literally look like a yeah. Love Island yeah. lineup. There is a seemingly very successful dating app look, and that cream has just been skimmed off and dunked into Love Island. Because it's not just that they're slim, they're also all pretty hot. And I say that objectively, I don't necessarily subjectively want to snog them all, but by the generic law of aesthetics, they're a good looking crowd. I do think there's always an aspirational element to reality TV shows. I don't think that's right, but I don't think homogenised body types are the MO of Love Island alone. Perhaps the whole structured reality genre should be looked at. Look at Made in Chelsea. Look at TOWIE. Gemma Collins is the only woman that isn't very slim on TOWIE. Yes, that's true. And actually, aspiration and aspirational is something that you hear a lot in those rooms with producers which is, I think, perhaps a little bit of an excuse to hide behind. Because I think it's a shame, and I think that they've missed a trick, because I think it would actually make the show better and more modern and more long-lasting, and people would have more of a connection to it if it was more representative. I was listening to an interview with Catelyn Moran recently, and she said 
art is the thing that changes stuff, it's not legislation. And she said, wouldn't it be amazing if you saw a big, wobbly, naked female body on TV being kissed from head to toe? How powerful would that be for a young woman to feel that she is worthy of love, of attention, of fashion, of fun, rather than any sort of petition or any sort of law. Mm. And I think you saw that with girls as well. I think that seeing yourself reflected and your physicality reflected on screen, I think is very, very powerful. Girls is a very different type of audience though. It's a very different piece of art. And I agree that people saw Lena Dunham's body as revolutionary and it freaked people out that she'd want to put it on screen. But I think the other thing to consider here is that many of these Love Island contestants are using the show as a launch pad for their career. It's sort of like a LinkedIn incubator. All of these contestants <laughs> look like Instagram influencers because that is what they are. They are influencers in waiting. Niall said last night that Adam looks like the kind of man he would follow on Instagram for Jimspo. And I think, I think that says it all. And most of them are barely into their 20s. Boohoo Man and Pretty Little Thing collaborations await them all. This week I read that Ken, the co-winner of last year's show, has earned 1.2 million quid since last summer. So there's no doubt that they are literally entering the villa fighting fit. They are gussying themselves up to be their most aspirational so that brands and network channels and fitness video creators will pounce on them when they're out. For better or for worse, we fetishise slimness in the Western world. And they are maximising their chances at future earnings. And if that sounds dark, I don't think it's unusual. Most reality show contestants use shows to peddle their wares. It's just with Love Island contestants, their wares are their body. But I think the question is, whose responsibility is it to change and shape public consciousness? Who's going to take the responsibility of changing the fetishisation of slimness only? I think channel commissioners underestimate viewers. I think they hide behind this cycle of it's what the people want. I used to hear it all the time. And I think it's an excuse to not be bold and innovative. And I think they feel like they sort of have to take the viewer by the hand. And I just don't buy it. I think the only way that culture will change is when when art and stories change. And I think that's why First Dates has been so popular. You know, that's a trailblazing show. But the reason it's a beautiful show is because it shows the truth of dating. It shows people with baggage. It shows people off the back of messy divorces or bereavement or rejection. It shows people with physical disability, with mental health issues. It shows people of all different backgrounds and all different shapes and sizes and how love is universal. And it tells all those different stories of what love means to all those different people. And it's beautiful and it's popular and it's well-watched and people fucking love it. So I think... I don't, think that, I don't think that Love Island would have lost anything by diversifying. I think you just have to look at, at first dates to see that. There is another thing as well that we haven't talked about, which is that Love Island is entirely heterosexual. Arguably a bit quite different to include gay people in it because you all need to share a bed. And I just imagine logistically it would be quite tricky for them always thinking how you compare them up. If you were single, would you go on Love Island, do you think? But I famously, my, my sisters always say, you would never go on a reality show because I worry constantly what people think of me. So the thought of people voting for or against me would have me so nervous. I'd be locked in a bathroom having <laughs> nerveria for the entire... And then I'd get voted off first anyway and it would be terribly sad. You'd wear some very good swimsuits though. I think I was asked to go on first dates for this like humble brag 
No, it, I, mean, I think it's because I was a dating columnist they wanted to be Is it because you're relatable? Thanks. Um, <laughs> no, but you'd be like, it's really normal. <laughs> a woman of the people. No, they asked me on and I said no because, as you know, I hate being on camera. But there was a, a small flicker, there was a nanosecond when I considered it because I'm so obsessed with the French maitre d' who says those like <laughs> phrases about love that make no sense, like love is like and he's an not an actor is he no no he's like a actor. very established maitre d no and he but i don't know where they found him he's so charming he did like 20 years in somewhere like sort of less go something like that yeah i have never heard him say a phrase about love that makes sense though if you listen to it, he's like love is like a piece of fruit it is both sweet and sometimes crunchy <laughs> And on that note, thank you so much to everyone who listened to The Hilo. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com, or tweet us at The Hilo Show. Thank you to Mert and Shandon for hosting us. Thanks very much, everyone. Bye. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.